You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here this morning. And I'm excited to look at the Word of God with you this morning. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, can you please open your Bible to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, verses 25 through, through 35. That's where we find ourselves today as we make our way through Luke's gospel together. And we will particularly look at verse 27 today and cover just the next condition for true discipleship. Now, before we read in this section of Luke, I want to recite our corporate uh, memory verse, our monthly memory verse, and I want to spend some time on it today. And uh, I hope that you've already begun to meditate on, on this verse, these verses, and I hope that you have... Uh, began to, to, to think about them and the truth that lies within them throughout the week. So Ephesians 4, verses 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, verses 11 through 12. Can we say it out loud? Go ahead. All right. And... Um, These are wonderful, wonderful words, and we're going to spend some time on them. Now, what we're seeing here, okay, so you can kind of place your finger in Luke, and and, uh, these verses made me want to preach the whole entire book of Ephesians, but I thought we probably shouldn't do that. We probably should stick with Luke, right? And um, what we're seeing in these particular verses, okay, what we're seeing in these verses on the screen is God's plan and God's pattern for his church. Okay, God's plan and God's pattern for the church. That is to say, what God desires for his church to be and how God has designed his church to function. Okay, it's the plan, it's the pattern, it's what he desires and what he's designed. And what we learn from these verses can be stated in terms of these three things. Gifts, gifts, growth, and gain. Gifts, growth, and gain. And if we have time, we had time to cover the entire chapter of Ephesians 4, which we're going to look at briefly, I would add group to the front side, and I would add goal to the back side. Group, gifts, growth, gain, goal. That's Ephesians chapter 4. So I want to briefly mention the progression of this 
and spend some time on it because it's so good for us to be uh, knowledgeable in this area and it should affect how we live. Okay, so turn with me, keep your finger in Luke and just turn to Ephesians 4. Okay, you're gonna go right in your Bible or if you have a, a phone, you know what to do. But just move to Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna spend a few minutes here. <clears throat> Now, I want to explain some things to you, because this is the, one of the most wonderful books in all the Bible. If you'll spend time in Ephesians, you'll fall in love with Ephesians, right? I feel like I, I can say that about every book of the Bible, and you should say that about every book of the Bible, right? When you're studying it, you say, this is the best book in the whole Bible, Amen. you know, every time you read it, um, every verse. But let me explain some things to you to make it... Uh, uh, manifest how wonderful this book is. Now, in chapters one through three in the book of Ephesians, Paul is speaking about one thing. Okay? Paul is speaking about one main thing in chapters one through three in the book of Ephesians. He's making clear, he's rejoicing over one subject. He focuses only on one matter during the whole three chapters, and that is the blessing of salvation. The blessing of salvation in chapters one through three. And under this main theme of the blessing of salvation, which is the entire three chapters, first three chapters, Paul kind of rocks back and forth between two aspects of the blessing of salvation. He says he rocks to one side and speaks of the absolute blessing the believer has received in salvation. Like, do you know what you've received? And then he rocks back to the other side and shows the absolute glory that God receives in salvation. Like, do you know what he's done? Right? Do you know who he is? How he accomplished this? Do you know what he's, do you know what he planned? Right? Do you know his love? Do you know his grace? So he kind of rocks back and forth here between the absolute blessing of the believer and the glory of God, all of it under the umbrella of salvation. The absolute blessing of the saint that the saint has received in Christ and the absolute praise that goes to God in sending Christ, right? That should be the characteristic of your Christian life. Gosh, I'm so thankful for Christ. Gosh, God has done so much. Why would he do that in Christ, in sending Christ? That should just be your Christian life. Right? <clears throat> Should be getting seasick over going back and forth here. He rejoices over how the believer has become the recipient of divine blessing in the gospel. He talks about what the believer has undeservedly received in Christ. He talks about what the believer has undeservedly become in Christ. He talks about who you are now in Christ. 
And then he praises and gives glory to God for what he has divinely given and what he's divinely accomplished in the gospel. The blessing of the believer, the Christian, the praise of God, considering salvation. Now, for instance, I'll give you an example. While highlighting this, Paul points to, and while highlighting this great blessing for the believer, the great praise to God in salvation, Paul highlights predestination. So if you look at verse, in chapter one, and you look at, uh, you know, verses three through 14, and really it's verses four through 11, he highlights one aspect of salvation that points to or highlights the blessing to the believer, the glory to God. He says, think about this. Think about predestination. So in verses four through six, he describes roughly nine aspects of predestination. The blessing to the believer, the praise to God. And and he says this, the choice of predestination, the timing of predestination, the purpose of predestination, the motive of predestination, the will of predestination, the praise and glory of predestination, the blessing of predestination, I think I'm off of my fingers, and the means of predestination. So this is what, this is when pointing to the blessing the believer has undeservedly received, but, glory, but gloriously experienced in salvation, and when pointing to the glory of God displayed in salvation, Paul points to one specific salvific aspect of salvation, and that is predestination. He says it, he says, uh, uh, like, think about how blessed and Christians Uh, Christians are and how glorious God is considering salvation. And he says almost, think about predestination. How blessed the believers are and how gracious and praiseworthy God is. Now that's just one example. That's what he's doing throughout the whole chapter. So the theme of chapters one through three then is the gospel. It's the blessing of the Christian and the praise to God. Now Paul moves into chapter four. Turn, Turn your page if you turned over. So one through three. And now he says this. In the beginning of chapter four, he starts with the word. He says, I what? Therefore. So listen now, as Paul moves into chapter four. And for those who have, you know, done this work of separating chapters and inserting verses. They did a really great job with this one. They they got this one right because as Paul moves into chapter four, Paul moves from the blessings that you have in Christ, the praise of God and salvation, then to chapter four, the instructions of those who are in Christ. He says, here's who you are. Here's what you've become. Here's the blessing. Here's what God has done, right? Therefore, Live like this. That's the progression. That's, we, we turn the page. That's a hinge right there in the beginning of chapter four. 
We literally turn the page, some of us, and, and metaphorically speaking. So for those who have, who have seen this, what Paul is doing is, as, after he's proved the blessing in Christ, he now gives instructions for those who are in Christ. From who they are to how they should live. Right? That's the progression now. Here's who you are. You become a believer. Here's the blessings in Christ. Now here's how you should live. Right? He moves from the indicative to the imperative. Now again, this is to the church. Remember? He's, he's writing this to a church. To the church is where? All right. Good job. Quick, Tony. Quick. That's right. Right? He's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to Ephesian believers. Here's who you are. Here's who you've become. Here's what God has done. Now, live like this. Right? So, this is what he writes. He's writing to the saints, to those who have been saved, Ephesians believers, Ephesian believers, what they've received, who they are, what God has done, and uh, now what they should do. Now, this is where God lays out, Paul lays out, God through Paul, the desire, the plan, the design, and the pattern for his church. Because the church is who? The believers, right? So if you want to say, well, how does, what does God desire from his church now that they've become his church? And, and what has God planned and designed and patterned for his church? You'd say, let me look, starting in Ephesians chapter 4. So, the Apostle Paul here speaks first in verses 1 through 6 of the group, as I mentioned. He speaks of the group. He says, this church in Ephesus must be one. It must be united. It must, be, it must maintain unity. You must act as one, work as one, be as one, serve each other as one. This is the way the church and its memberships should function. We are one. You are one. We are one together in Christ. All of you in this church, Paul says, must strive not to live separate from each other. Don't be on an island. Don't isolate yourself. Don't just see these people on Sunday. Function as one, to live constantly connected to each other. He tells them specifically how to do that. He gives them ingredients or instructions for this particular church in Ephesus to remain unified. What are the ingredients he gives? He gives things like humility and gentleness and patience. And so on. Those are the ingredients for a church to maintain unity. Those are the, those are the ingredients. Humility, gentleness, patience. And this only makes sense that the church would be one because each of these believers in the church have the same Holy Spirit inside of them. And they have the same gospel that they've believed and that they're proclaiming. It would only make sense that they're one. He speaks of their same Holy Spirit. He speaks of 
the ingredients in their character that should maintain unity, and he speaks of the same Lord, the same gospel. This is unity. So, secondly, which is where we'll finish today, after he speaks of the group, Paul speaks of the gifts. He speaks of the gifts. Group, then gifts. So, after speaking of how those in the church are all the same, right? He's gone back. Blessings in Christ, glory to God and salvation, therefore, group, unity, and secondly, gifts. So, after speaking of this, Paul speaks now, he speaks first of how they're all the same, those in the church, they're one, and then Paul moves to now how they're all different. So he, he speaks first of how those in the church, you've all received this blessing of salvation. You've all, the glory goes to God for your salvation. You should all be one. We're all the same, same spirit, same gospel, same Lord. So he speaks of how now they're all the same. And then he transitions to secondly, now how they're all different. And he says, you're all the same in Christ and should be united. But within that unity, you are to recognize that God has made you all different. Right? He says you're all the same, but you're all different. He speaks of two categories then of gifts. Two categories of gifts. And they're really two sides of the same coin, but we see a distinction. We're still under the gifts here. Two categories of gifts. He speaks first of gifts in the church, and he speaks second of gifts to the church. Blessings of salvation to the Christian, glory to God and salvation, therefore unity in the body, gifts, and gifts being divided into two categories, in the church and to the church. So, Paul gives this imagery, and if you've read it, and we can just look at it, look at Ephesians 4, chapter, or verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You say, well, what does he mean there? Well, what he means there is this. He gives the image of what would typically happen after a victory in war. The victor would free the captives, and then he would give them the plunder as their gifts. And they would be able to live with those gifts and use those gifts and enjoy those gifts in their new freedom as they live in their new land. And so you get the idea here in the great salvation that Paul has just discussed Christ had the victory in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and his ascension. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated sin. And in his victory, he has set captives free. That's you, the believer. And once these captives, who were once captives to sin, headed to death, 
under the rule of the devil, no longer are slaves to sin once they had been forgiven in Christ, given the power of his spirit for sanctification, securely headed for heaven. Christ gave gifts to every believer, every freed captive, and they are spiritual gifts. The moment that your eyes are opened to Christ, this is a spiritual war and the gifts that he gives of the plunder are spiritual. So the second that you, you got a lot of skills, a lot of talents, some of you, but these are different. These are spiritual gifts. And the moment that you become a believer, God has given these to you to live with, to use, to enjoy and your new freedom in Christ, especially as you live among the people of God, among other freed captives. So spiritually speaking of the church, Paul speaks of gifts in the church. These are mentioned first. These are spiritual gifts, various gifts he's given to every believer when they are saved. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and as we see in this chapter here, they are given to be used to minister to the body of Christ. So you're set free, you're saved, you're one, but you're different. You've been given spiritual gifts at the moment that you're saved because you are one, because you now live amongst believers and you're building each other up until Christ returns. And so each person has been given this spiritual gift. And they're to be used to minister to the body, to serve the body, to build up the body, to work within the body, to be used in the body. That is the sole reason God has given spiritual gifts. For the body of Christ. For the edification of the body, the church. Spiritual gifts are not to be used for yourself. If you hear someone say, I've used this spiritual gift and I use it by myself, that's an oxymoron. If you say someone says, I have this spiritual gift and I do it when I'm alone, that would be unbiblical. Spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body. They're not used for yourself, by yourself, on yourself, or primarily on the world. They're used for the body of Christ they're given for each believer to serve, to minister to others, to be used to serve the church, to carry out the needs that are laid out by the elders. So every believer, listen, every believer, every member here should be actively, eagerly, joyfully, constantly, excellently using their gifts to serve this body. That's why God's given them to you. Or else you are not being a faithful steward of your gifts. We should have people everywhere during all parts of the week, especially on the Lord's Day, using their various gifts, unique and helpful, organized, recurrent, spirit powered, loving, serving the body. There should be people desiring as deacons to carry out the service needs here. So elders focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. And here's how it should look. People should just pop up everywhere all the time. And they say, I want to do this ministry. I want to start this ministry. I feel gifted and called to do this ministry. I desire to do this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And we as elders just encourage you, just bless you, right? 
And, and, and you are taking the initiative. You're starting, you're serving, and you're being steady in those ways, in a lot of different kinds of ways. You're not waiting for leadership to organize and lead. That's the wrong view. That's the wrong view, as though the elders have gone to school for the, um, or are trained to, you know, to organize various organizations within the larger organization. That's not how it works. This is an organism. It's not an organization. It's got life. It's connected to the same life. So it becomes impossible for the leadership to maintain and limits the amount of types of ministries that can be done if that's the way that it functions. So these are the gifts in the church. Every believer has been given them at the point of salvation to serve his body, to build up his body, to grow the church. This is the gifts in the church. These are the first phrase of our memory verse now. You'd say all that for an intro, yep. And now we move to the gifts to the church, which is where he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So we've talked about the blessing of the believer in Christ, the glory to God for salvation, the blessing to the believer. Therefore, unity, gifts in the body, and now we're talking about these gifts. It leads us to our memory verse to the body. What are the gifts to the body? They are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Notice here, Christ gave them to the church. We just saw how he had the authority to assign spiritual gifts to each believer. He decided what each believer gets. It's not the believer's choice. It was not of their doing. It was the sovereign Lord who assigned to you your spiritual gifts. Now we see that the Lord has not only gifted the church in the church, given gifts in the church, but he's also gift, given gifted men to the church. First, he gave apostles. These are messengers. Whenever we see the word, the apostles, anywhere in scripture, it only refers to one aspect, which is the 12 apostles. So when you see this word, apostle, it does not stand for anything else. It only stands for apostles, right? It only refers to the 12, also including Matthias, who replaced who? Judas, and Paul, who was added as an apostle. So the apostles, they're categorized as apostles. Why? Well, because they have three unique roles in the Bible. First, they began the foundation of the church through their ministry. Second, they were given and they proclaimed and they wrote the word of God. Third, they confirmed their message through miraculous signs, wonders, and healings. That was the apostles' office. Apostles and their responsibilities played a distinct role in the history of the church, and they were given for a specific time, but apostles were not replaced. That office ceases to exist, nor is that office continual in any way. We don't have any more apostles. So he gave the apostles. Second, he gave the prophets. Now, these are New Testament prophets. These are those in the history of the church who Christ gave to the church for divine revelation to the church who confirmed the words and the works of the apostles. They're right there saying, 
What he said is true, right? And you know what happened to all the prophets? All of them slaughtered. Why? Because they spoke the true word of God. People don't like that. They want something else. They want maybe a little bit of the word of God, but give me some other things too. We don't like that. They were all killed. The office ended, so were all the apostles, except for John. The office ended when the writings of the New Testament were completed. There was no longer any need for the prophets. So God continued to speak to his church through what he recorded on actual pages with actual words. What do we call that? What? Yeah, the word of God. The scripture, the Bible. Right? So the apostles and the, po- and the prophets were then replaced by the next two gifts to the church, and those are the evangelists and the pastors who are teachers. Evangelists are men who declare the gospel to the lost, and then shepherds and teachers, or more literally translated, pastors and teachers. They're more literally translated, pastors who teach. It's one, it's one office. Evangelists, it's not pastors and then teachers. It's pastors and teachers. The pastors teach. That's the role. Right? They shepherd and they teach. In this office, the structure is the same person. The two roles are one person. It can be said, pastors who teach. Pastoring is done by teaching. Leading is done by teaching. Shepherding is being done by teaching. Teaching is how people are led, which is why we are so big on the preaching of the word is the central aspect of the church, because that's how the church is led. So this person is also synonymous with as the Bible describes, elder, bishop, overseer, shepherd, pastor, they're all the same person because they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. So the New Testament identified that there's two requirements for this pastor and this shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. There's only two categories of requirements, character and ability to teach, right? If you, look at the, if you look at the requirements, if you look at the, uh, the um, spiritual requirements for an elder, only two categories. There's only one skill able to teach. The rest are character-based, right? So their role is for the believers in the church to teach the believers the word so they understand, they mature, they're sanctified, they're godly, they're obedient, they're equipped, they serve one another, they teach each other, they biblically lead in their home and in the church, they evangelize, they refute false doctrine, they teach others, right? And this is the next part we will get to next week. So don't miss next week as we build on this because I want you to build on your understanding of what the word says about the church so you can live obediently to his word. So considering our memory verse this morning, we focused on the group and we focused on the gifts. And the gifts that God has given are gifts in the church and they are gifts to the church. Next week, we'll focus on the growth, the third aspect. Why has God given these gifts to the church, these men to the church? Why? What's the purpose? How is this supposed to function? What's the plan? What's the pattern? What's his desire? What's his design? Right? So, now, sermon one is complete. Let's move to sermon two. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, 
verses 25 through 35. Let's read it. We're right on time. We're about half and half today. You ready? Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. We're taking one aspect at a time here to do what this passage calls for, which is to slow down and count the cost. And we'll pick back up with larger, probably, chunks after we get done with this section. What are we seeing here? What we're seeing here and what we've established, listen now, in the previous two sermons on this section is that Jesus is making clear the conditions for true discipleship. These are the conditions for true discipleship for true salvation. He is making clear the cost of being his true disciple and truly being saved so that those who would count, those who would be disciples would count the cost of following him before Following him. Warning them not to make a naive, ill-informed, emotional, self-centered decision. Based on false expectations with a false understanding, only to later find out that the cost is too great for them only to find out later that what is required to be his disciples 
exceeds what they are willing to pay. To not make emotional decision and be overpowered by the enemy. For their faith to be proved impure, meaning it was never really the real thing in the first place. He is telling them to stop, understand the cost, and count the cost before you decide to follow Jesus. That's why I've titled this Stop and Count the Cost of True Discipleship. And today he says the cost in which you must understand and consider, count, and come to terms with is suffering. This is his call to discipleship. Stop. You know that if you don't love me more than you love your family, you can't be my disciple. Stop. Do you know if you don't decide up front that you are on the road towards suffering and you head down that road knowing that which every disciple will experience, you cannot be my disciple. That's exactly what he's saying here. So listen, he describes in this passage, listen now, he describes in this passage the essentials of true salvation. True salvation entails suffering. So listen, this text, it teaches as all texts teach. This text, listen, teaches as all texts teach one of the main 10 theological categories of the Bible. This text is teaching on one of the 10 main theological categories of the Bible. Every text in the Bible teaches one of these 10 theological categories, sometimes more than one. Every passage of the Bible teaches us about one of these roughly 10 major theological categories. Every passage has doctrine that rises out of it. Theology that rises out of it. Truth about a category of truth that rises out of it. Theology proper. That's the truth about who? God. Christology, the truth about Christ. Pneumatology, the truth about the Holy Spirit. Bibliology, the truth about the Bible. Anthropology, the truth about man. Hamartiology, the truth about sin. Soteriology, the truth about salvation. Ecclesiology, the truth about the church. Angelology, the truth about angels and demons and Satan. And eschatology, the truth about the end times. Every passage in the Bible teaches on one of those 10 categories. Sometimes more. 
You draw those theological truths, doctrinal truths out, can categorize them and place all this biblical knowledge into those categories so you have an understanding of what the Bible says about the major things of the things of God. This passage deals with soteriology, salvation. Meaning, and you can really take this and this section would have a sub-point of soteriology, and that would be this. Listen, the attitude, the extreme faith commitment that is required for those who trust in Christ savingly. If you were to talk about soteriology, you could talk about the atonement. You could talk about reconciliation. You could talk about a lot of things. This category is the category of the extreme faith commitment the extreme commitment and attitude, the faith attitude of one who trusts in Christ savingly. That's the subcategory of soteriology that's being described here. It fits within the larger system of what the Bible teaches about salvation. This is the faith commitment that must exist for salvation to truly be experienced. He is Lord. He requires complete allegiance. He requires him to be the first priority. He requires your entire life. He must be your entire priority. And all of your priorities must shift. If you are to be a Christian, if you are contemplating a relationship with Christ, you must know what this means. There's no excuses, other priorities, or casual commitments. None of that will do. Nothing else must take first place if you will not make Christ the essential priority, you cannot be his disciple. This is the commitment necessary. You remember in the preceding parable, the guests refuse to face the cost. They say, well, I have to go and do this type of thing first. Let me first go take care of that. I first have to deal with, with this. And they were refused from his banquet. Jesus says, this is... What is required for true discipleship? Total commitment. Not one's own terms. Not on one's own convenience. Not a periodic volunteer. It cannot be less than wholehearted. We saw the accompaniment of the crowd. He's not interested in crowds. The son of God is not interested in crowds. He in no way equates crowds with spiritual progress at all. He turns to the crowds and then we see his intentionality, number two. And in this, we see that his evangelistic method is entirely different than what we see today. He takes the initiative. He stops the crowd. He explains the truth. He doesn't hold back any truth, thinking I'll explain more truth later once we get him in. Can I just tell you something? Listen now. There's no strategy here. There's no tactic. Sometimes you'd say, well, I don't know if a lost person will like that. I wonder if I could make this a little bit more. How should I word? There's none of that. He explains the truth. Just the truth. Sometimes you say, well, we got to make sure we're loving. You speak the truth in love. Absolutely. But listen, your love doesn't save them. The, the word of God, the truth, with the power of the Holy Spirit, saves them. 
that you are saved through coming to a knowledge of the truth. He just speaks the truth. The truth must be explained. There's no tactic here. He speaks the truth up front. He doesn't wait. And he understands that many will reject the message unless God softens their hearts, opens their eyes. This is Jesus' tactic. Costi Hinn says a seeker-driven church would fire Jesus. They would. But you know what? That's what the lost world needs to hear the truth. They will reject it because the Bible says there's darkness, there's hardness of heart, there's ignorance, there's blindness to the truth. You must share the truth and you must pray that God takes that truth and saves the soul. That's all you can do. Mark tells us a parable of a man who plants the seed and goes to sleep. He wakes up. He doesn't know how the seed grew. Don't be tactful. Don't worry that they won't receive the way in which you say it. You put way too much emphasis on that. Just literally speak God's words after him. If you believe this is inspired by God, theology should change you. It shouldn't just be head knowledge. It should change you. If you believe these are every single word is a word of God, what are you going to do with this? You're just going to say it. If you believe that, that's the kind of people we must be. So we, then we see, thirdly, the cost of discipleship. He's, we see great crowds of company. He turned aside, and he said this. If anyone comes after me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Can't, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. So we see first that loving Christ more than family is one of his conditions. This is the evidence of a true believer. You love Christ so much that in comparison, it at times, and maybe to the world, looks like you hate your family. You love him more and you love them less. Secondly, this is what he says, loyalty to Christ, which endures suffering. That's the condition. If you're gonna be his disciple, there must be a loyalty to him which endures suffering. This sounds nothing like the invitations we hear. Okay, if you want to come to Christ, pray this short little quick prayer. Praise God you're saved. See you later. Really? Jesus is saying, you want to come to me? Love me more than your family? Head towards suffering for my sake? That's the mark of a true disciple. That's the invitation. That's the cost. Let's point this out for the next 10 minutes. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says a true disciple is one, he says in verse 26, even at the end, one who hates his own life. That's the same term that he used to describe the family, meaning this, he loves Christ more than he loves his own life. This is the initial expression of saving faith. He comes to Christ. He loves Christ so much or loves his own life so less that he's willing to surrender his own life, lose his own life, suffer in this life because Christ has become the priority. It's what John 12 says, right? We're just taking the end of 26 briefly before we move into 27. 
Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. It's exactly what he's saying at the end of verse 26. And this is kind of inching us towards verse 27, but it's not quite there yet. It's more general. It's not as specific. He says, if you don't hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. The same in which he's applied to the family. Love your life less than you love Christ. Some might even say, do you hate your life when you decide to do this or that for Christ? Or you decide to focus so much of your attention on Christ that to the world's eyes, it's as if you hate your own life. John 17, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. So then he moves into verse 27 and he is more specific here. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now listen, he's made this clear to his disciples in Luke 9. And now he is making this clear to the crowds. To the disciples, he said this in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now he's making this clear to the crowds. He's making this clear to everyone. The true disciple must be so loyal to Christ in his words that they are prepared to give their life up to be faithful to him. Now, I want to point this out. In other places, Christ also says this must be the continual attitude. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. Right? But this is Jesus pointing to the initial attitude of one who comes to Christ. He must deny himself a denial of sin, a denial of self. A true disciple is not self-centered. He's Christ-centered. There is nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian, Jesus is saying. You must hate your own life. That is, love it so much less than you love me. Deny yourself. But then again, he becomes more specific in verse 27. Let's look at it. Because he is speaking to something very specific that we need to get across before we're finished here today. Verse 27, he starts with the word whoever. And this is like saying anyone. Remember when he said anyone in verse 26? Well, if you don't remember, just look at verse 26. He says if anyone. And in verse 27, he says whoever. That is essentially to say the same thing. This applies to everyone. There's no distinction. No one gets this different terms. This is for every human being on the planet, every person in this room. These are God's inspired words to every person in this room right now. There is no exception. You don't, get, you don't say, well, I think a little bit differently about this kind of stuff. It does not matter. These are his inspired words to every soul in this room currently. And every person on the planet. He says this next, whoever does not bear his own cross. Listen, this is where we must understand. This is a literal term of carrying one's own cross to the place of execution. 
Crucifixion was a common fate in first century Palestine. No metaphor was needed. No explanation was needed. Jesus called his disciples to prepare for death. Listen, you have to understand this. He speaks of denying yourself, hating your own life. Those, those are close to the term, but he is being specific here. In contemporary explanations, some people say, well, this can represent some pleasant or un, undesired circumstance. For instance, um, some say my boss or my poverty or my friend. That's my cross to bear. That is not what Jesus is referring to here. He is not speaking metaphorically here. Some people might say, well, this is referring to his cross and that you would follow him. Well, we understand that retrospectively and the first century church would understand that retrospectively. We truly are coming after him. He sets this example for us. But neither of his listeners, none of his listeners would interpret it this way because he told them that he was going to die, but he had not yet told them that he was going to be crucified. So, to these original hearers, listen now, listen. To his, these original hearers, the cross represented one thing. Terrible suffering, pain, and death. This was the common way for Roman soldiers to execute prisoners. They understood clearly what Jesus meant. It's the willingness to endure hatred, accusation, rejection, hostility, shame, persecution, and even death for being associated with Jesus. And let me tell you, he is not saying that this will happen to some. He is saying this happens to every true disciple. It's what 1 Peter 4 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian. A true disciple endures suffering in this life for being committed to Christ and to be, for being committed to his word. That's what the disciple is. That's what he does. That's what becomes of him. Acts 20, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen, except one thing I do know for sure, 100%. Imprisonment afflictions await, but I don't count my life as precious to me. I just want to finish the course. To the true disciple, eternal life is so valuable, they're willing to suffer to get it. Listen now. Jesus is saying, whoever does not bear his own cross, the idea of bearing a cross is one who's carrying a burden, a load, a weight. But when you notice the order, whoever 
does not bear his own cross and come after me. When you've got the cross that you're bearing, you are a man already condemned to death. You've been accused. You're, you're willing to suffer your fate and go to your fate. This is the one who follows Jesus. It's one who bears the cross for being associated with Jesus. Whoever does not bear this cross, take up the guilty position before the world for associating themselves with Christ, can't be his disciple. He says this. There's no reference to his crucifixion here. There's, no ref- there's nothing metaphorical. He is saying that you are heading towards suffering when you decide to follow me. You might, you will be lied about. You will be accused. You will be shamed. You will be ridiculed. Every single one of you, true disciple. Now you might say to yourself, well, I'm willing to do this because this will never happen to me. Let me tell you, he is not speaking of people who go to the mission field, to an unreached people group who kill people. That's part of it. He's speaking to every believer. This is the cost for every believer. So we must understand that if you're a true disciple, you are so close to Jesus And you are so proclaiming the truth of Jesus that this fate is inevitable. And if that is not the reality of your life, then something is wrong with your discipleship. Either you are not proclaiming the truth or you are strategically wording the truth as to avoid suffering and therefore not proclaiming the truth or you are walking at such a proverbial distance from Jesus that you are avoiding the fate that every one of his followers would face because that's the fate that he faces. This is the truth of every believer. Are you willing to endure it? From family, from neighbor, from culture, from friends? Listen now, we're going to finish on this. You might say, well, I don't, this is not my, Um, view of Christianity. Let me tell you, beginning in the Old Testament, the history of Israel is full of prophets calling people back to be reconciled to God and being mistreated and killed because of it. Let me give you a few examples. Jeremiah, mistreated, put in a pit, stoned to death. Ezekiel, same kind of thing. Amos, life-threatened. Zechariah, stoned in the temple. Micah, punched in the face. Isaiah, mistreated. Every single prophet persecuted. You say, well, how do you know every single prophet? Well, because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter seven, he says this to the Pharisees, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's a rhetorical question, meaning they persecuted all of them. The New Testament, Stephen was stoned to death. The apostles, every one of them was slaughtered except John. John the Baptist killed. And most notably, who? Christ. Every faithful messenger of God persecuted by the world. Jesus says it's because of this. I testify that the world's deeds are evil. He says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. So, listen now. 
False disciples will turn away or false disciples will be so superficially committed to Christ that they will never experience this because they're not really following him, nor are they really proclaiming his truth. This is not something we love or look to, but this is what Jesus is saying. If you come after me, and come after me here means no different than come to me. It's salvation. You could say it, it tends to highlight a little bit more of the continuation of following him, but it's salvation. This will be the cost. This will be the cost. So this was used also, let me just tell you, in the Old Testament. When he says, come after me, it was used oftentimes, like in Deuteronomy 13, 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 18, of following God and not the other gods. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you believe I'm God, if you truly are born again, a saved disciple of me, it will be marked by you loving me more than your family. And it will be marked by you clinging so close to me and proclaiming my word so faithfully that you are on the road to suffering. That is your inevitable fate. And yet you remain loyal because you believe. It's suffering due to being a Christian. This is the invitation for salvation. That's a true disciple. And I pray that you would understand this cost and truly come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this and that you would just use it for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of what the church is supposed to be as we talk through Ephesians. And I pray that you would make us aware of your calling for true discipleship, that we would love you more than we even love our families. That's the requirement. And that we would love you so much, cling so tightly to you, walk so closely with you, proclaim your truth so faithfully and regularly that we would be as if we are people already condemned by the world. One-way ticket, no turning back, our life is over. But yet we would bear that cross. We would bear that cross to remain loyal to you. These are the marks of true discipleship. Thank you for not hiding the truth and to leave us deceived that we are saved when we're not. Help us to understand the commitment, the extreme faith commitment as the aspect of salvation that you're making clear for us today. so that we would have people who are truly born again. We would have people who are committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.